You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. We've got a great interview lined up, but before we get into that, I just want to remind you once again to check out our 2020 holiday gift guide. There's lots of great stuff on there, and I'm sure that you'll find something either for you or for your loved ones. There'll be a link to it in the show notes. And speaking of buying things, we've got new merch. Revision Path has new merch. You can shop the Revision Path collection over at moncherry.com. That's M-O-N-Cherry.com. I'll put a link uh, in the show notes as well. You can grab a t-shirt or a hoodie from the limited edition drop and help support the podcast and represent Revision Path out there in the world. Well, as much out there in the world as you can be with lockdown, quarantine, and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, like I said before, I'll have a link to the collection in the show notes. It's a limited edition drop, so get your merch before it's gone. Also, recognize Volume 2 Fresh just came out on December 1st. Check out the new essays for this volume of our design anthology over at recognize.design. Now, some people have already asked me about Volume 3. There will be a Volume 3. There'll be news about that coming probably early Q1 of next year. So be on the lookout for that. Make sure that you're subscribed to us on Twitter or Instagram to get you know the latest information on that. Oh, and one more thing, one final thing before we get to the interview. We got a new review this week. This review is from Tommy G in Australia, and it's titled, You Need This in Your Life, which I love that. (laughs) Here it is. This is by far one of the best design podcasts out there. Through Mari's Cherry's interview style, you really get to find out about the guests, their ups and downs, and what really makes them who they are. The Revision Path podcast is really insightful and inspiring. My only regret is that I hadn't discovered it sooner. Keep up the great work. We salute you, Maurice Cherry. Tommy G, thank you so, so much for that awesome review. I love reading these kinds of reviews. Well, I love reading reviews in general, but I definitely love it when they really go into why they love the show. So thank you so much for that. All right, now let's get down to business. This week on Revision Path, I'm talking with Malika Reed, an art director at Goodby Silverstein and Partners. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Hey, so my name is Malika Reed. I'm an art director at Goodby Silverstein and Partners. I work on advertising campaigns. They range from print to, you know, digital to sometimes it's an app to sometimes it's a TV spot or it could even just be, you know, an experiential campaign. Some of my clients currently right now are Liberty Mutual, BMW, HP. And in the past, I've worked on brands such as Planned Parenthood, E-Trade, and I love to do proactive projects for nonprofit clients and recently launched a project called Not A Gun. Nice. What is an average day like for you? Because it sounds like you're tackling a lot of things. (laughs) You know, I wish I could come up with an idea of what the average day is. But for me, for the most part, I'm an early riser. I like to wake up pretty early and get started on things. But um, I would say 
maybe like 30% of the day I spend concepting, like thinking about projects or thinking about how to make things better. The other 30% of the day I focus on like editing and execution. So whether that is, you know, working on some design works for some of my campaigns or working on like editing, you know, for my side projects, such as like my podcast. And then the other part of my day, I work on, you know, collaborating because, you know, working in advertising, you know, there's a lot of meetings, there's a lot, a lot of meetings, um, a lot of collaboration. So I figure, you know, the rest of my day, I spend just talking to people (laughs) and and figuring out, you know, how to get around problems that, that arise when you're in production. But, you know, the reason why I say like there isn't an average day, because there are times where I'm going to be on production and I'll be on production, you know, in another country, like Buenos Aires for like a week and a half. And so like my schedule will look very different. Or there are times where I'm just in the very beginning of like a big campaign. So maybe, you know, for a week or two straight, I'm concepting every day and I'm working on, you know, the boards and the presentations and revisions for the client. But right now, because of coronavirus, you know, there's the reality of production. It's a lot of it's remote right now. So I don't have the luxury to be everywhere shooting. So I think my day has kind of gone, has taken on this shape of, you know, breaking down into these three different quarters where I spend it concepting, collaborating and executing. Are there other ways that I guess work has changed because of the pandemic? I know you you mentioned remote work, but is there anything else? I think it allows you to structure your day and be able to do more. I feel like, you know, when you have to go into the office, it feels like, okay, everything you do within that eight hours of, you know, the time that you spend in the office should just be solely for your, you know, your day job, your nine to five. And now I feel like with remote work, it's kind of like you're setting your own hours. Yes, you have to like be engaged for like the nine to five, like whatever your traditional like workday is. But now I feel like I find more time for a lot of my side projects and connecting, collaborating with people on other things. And so like maybe I'll I'll work on a podcast episode early in the morning or maybe I'll work on, you know, design for like a nonprofit early in the morning and then I'll shift gears to working on stuff for like my day-to-day clients, you know, at, at Good Be Silver Scene Partners. And then maybe at lunch, the lunch break that I'll take for myself, I'll go back to some side projects or, you know, sometimes I'll take a call for my job and then I'll take a call for another thing. So I feel like I have a little bit more flexibility in how I work and how I get things done and how I can jump around and, and navigate what projects I want to touch within a day. What would you say is like the hardest part about what you do? Not because of the pandemic, but just in general about your job. What's the hardest part? I think the hardest part is coming up with creative ideas. I feel like most jobs, they give you this roadmap of how to do things. Like if you're an accounting, you know how to do accounting. Like, you know, there are spreadsheets and there are formulas for you to, you know, balance your sheets and everything. But when you're a creative working in advertising, you get this brief and it's like, oh, the client wants to sell car insurance, but they don't feel like they have a mascot. Like, can you come up with a mascot to solve this problem? There's no roadmap for like coming up with a mascot or a tagline. You just kind of like, have to throw things at the wall and see what sticks and really lean into like the true insights. And you can research things and you can understand your customer only to a point, but there's no real path forward with creativity. You really have to find what inspires you and and move with that. Where do you pull inspiration from? I mean, it sounds like that can be a lot, you know, on demand like that. Oh man, I think I pull inspiration from everywhere. I spend a lot of time on Pinterest. I'm deep in these Pinterest streets. (laughs) 
I spent so much time on Pinterest. I love Pinterest. It's it's probably my happy place. But I also make it a point to visit a lot of museums whenever I do travel. And I like to seek out art and artful experiences, you know, whenever I can, or just storytelling. I also am like this person that holds on to weird random facts. And I think that helps me with a lot of the insights and the strategic thinking that you have to have in order to be an art director. You know, a lot of people get confused by like what an art director is. And essentially the the biggest difference between an art director and a designer is art directors are more conceptual. And so like I come up with like the concept and then like the vision for it, how it unfolds. And then I find people to help me execute it. I find designers that can spend more time, you know, working and finessing a logo that I quickly comped because my time is more better suited to like thinking about the idea and how it comes to life and figuring out like the best partners to like visually, you know, bring that to life. So I rely on people like designers and photographers to help, you know, bring my my creative visual, my, my vision to life. So I'm constantly looking for it great directors and photographers to like collab with or to be inspired by. I'm always like looking for the next like coffee table book with, you know, so-and-so's exhibit. But at the same time, like I'm also this person that will watch the most random documentaries (laughs) on things. And I find that sometimes that inspires me in the way that it makes it easier for me to come up with like insights and interesting ideas. And I think, you know, art, is amazing because, you know, anything can be art. And the part about my job that I like is I can look at anything and figure out a way to make it visually interesting and something people will want to engage with. And I don't do it by myself. Of course, I have a copywriting partner who I work with to come up with ideas and figure out the execution. But from like the the visual point of view, that's like, you know, the part of my job that I have to go out and seek out, you know, inspiration for. I mean, it Honestly, that sounds really fun, (laughs) like to be able to seek out all these different sources and like take in all this information. And then now you have kind of this big reference bank of material to pull from when a client comes with an idea. You can say, oh, well, why don't we do this? And then like you can talk about the vision and where it comes from and then pull everything together. I mean, that sounds like a great job. It is. I love my job. And you know what? I do feel like, you know, the biggest part of the art director's job is having a good reference at hand, you know, just to sell the idea through, you know, it's always important to have like really good reference. So I'm always, you know, watching movies so that, you know, I can always like steal frames of like, this is what the lighting will look like. And this is what the set, you know, design can be. So I'm definitely, you know, a a reference bank. (laughs) Is there like anything in particular right now that you're kind of drawn to just, you know, in terms of like your latest obsession? Oh, man, I I tend to go, you know, it's so funny that you said my latest obsession, because I do tend to get obsessed about, you know, colors or patterns or, you know, different motifs at times. Right now, I'm currently, you know, in Mexico and I'm actually in Tulum in like the Yucatan Peninsula. And I'm really obsessed with like the Mexican, the Mayan decor. And, you know, since I've been out here, I've just gone to so many ruins and I've gone to so many like artisanal places where they craft things. They make so much from wood. It's it's very much a sustainable living out here, but they make these beautiful spaces and all these woven pieces. And I think I've like really become obsessed with like home decor and where like mid-century meets modern meets like Mexican like boho vibes. I've been hearing lately, I don't know, maybe it's within like the past three months or so, I've been hearing so much about people going to Mexico. I mean, 
I guess it's because it's, I mean, well, it's right there and they'll, they'll let us in just in terms of places that Americans can go right now because of the pandemic. But what drew you to Mexico? I had come to this part of Mexico before and I really loved it, really vibed with it. One, because this part of Mexico, like Tulum, there's like two parts to it. There's one that's like the town, the Pueblo, where like the locals are. And then there's the town part that's like the beach and it's it's kind of touristy, but it's beautiful. It's nice. Mm-hmm. And I really fell in love with like the vibe of like the town, the local people. Everyone here is just so relaxed and so laid back. And it's just, it's a peaceful place because a lot of people in this part, they don't have much but they don't have much and they're so content and happy. And there's just something about like that joy of being content. And, you know, this is such a beautiful area. It's literally, you know, the jungle, you have the beach, it's beautiful skies. It's just a vibe. It's a vibe in of itself. (laughs) And I was staying in the Bay area and I was just like, this is not a vibe right now. You know, a lot is Mm -hmm. going on in America right now. It's not a a happy place to be, especially for, you know, a woman of color. It's very stressful. It's very tension. It's a lot of tension. And I was just feeling like I need to get away. I know travel is tricky right now. So what I did was I figured out, okay, where can I go that's close enough that will keep me within, you know, sort of the same time zone of my my office or not too far out of it that is mostly outside. It's climate, tropical climate, because I'm a heat seeker. I love me some warm weather. And I remember that I had such a great time, you know, the first time I came out to this part of Mexico and I was like, that's it. That's what I'm doing. And I just spent, you know, a couple of days on Airbnb searching for the right spot. And I found it. And, and now I'm here. And now I, I just don't want to leave. <laughs> How long have you been I mean, there? I've been here for about five or six weeks. And then I think I'm going to stay until like the end of the year for sure. But maybe I'll extend. Let's who knows what's happening, you know, with the current, you know, political climate. Maybe I'll be more inclined to come back depending on what happens. Who knows? But right now, this area is like, it's like, come as you are. There's no judgment. I'm learning Spanish. I've gotten way more conversational with it. I don't know if I'm like hundred percent fluent. So like, I've been able to really experience this place by like becoming more immersed in it and like the local culture and learning about the people here. And it's just been a lovely departure from like the life that I was living, you know, this past summer in the Bay area where, you know, a lot of things are indoors. So you, you don't want to go outside. It's it's not, it doesn't feel safe. And I, I don't feel like I was like living. I just felt like I was just like working all the time. And now that I'm here in Mexico, I get outside a lot more. I enjoy the beach a lot more. I can go outside and it just, everything's so open and airy. I feel safe here. And I'm just a little bit more, just happier. And it's funny because the first time I came out here, I didn't see that many black people. So I wasn't expecting to see as many black people as I have since I've come out here. And it's been a wonderful thing. And you know, the black thing, when you see a black person in a a distant land, how you give them the nod, Uh I'm giving nods all day. People are like, (laughs) oh, hey girl, what's up? Like, how you doing? It's just, it's just so nice and refreshing to just see like the love that black people get, you know, in this part of Mexico. It's really great. That's lovely. That's lovely. Uh, just for people that are listening, we we are recording this on election day. We're recording in the morning. So this is prior to any precinct reporting. So we're kind of in like an idyllic space right now because we don't know what the next thing is going to be. But there's something that you said through all that where you said, I feel safe here. That I think is, that's the feeling you want to have when you go anywhere is like feeling safe. And I think certainly with the events that have not just unfolded this year, but I mean, shit for what decades, centuries, like 
it's been hard to feel safe in this country. So the fact that you've been able to make it somewhere and that you feel safe and you feel like this is a place where you belong is, is amazing. Wow. It's funny because this episode also is coming out. Um, this is kind of a, this is kind of a weird meta thing. So this episode is coming out on the day that I'm starting a new job. <laughs> I just started, oh, wow. at, I just started. Or I will be starting at this tech startup that's based out of Amsterdam called Code Sandbox. And I mean, I knew about Code Sandbox, some an old coworker of mine works there and everything. And I think the thing that sort of intrigued me the most was that it's in Amsterdam because I was like, oh, I have an opportunity to move to the Netherlands, possibly, maybe. <laughs> because even in my contract, it says, oh, you'll be working from the U.S. and the Netherlands because the company is all in the Netherlands. Like I'm the first U.S employee. So I'm like, well, it kind of would make more sense if that happened. But you know, with COVID and travel bans and stuff, that unfortunately is not the case, but it's an option. I certainly, (laughs) it certainly played heavily into me accepting the offer. I'm like, wait a minute, I could get out of this country depending on the way things go after the election. So yes, I'll take it. (laughs) This might be my golden parachute. I'll take it. Yeah. Exactly. And question for you, what's your time difference going to be? working remotely six hours i think six hours yeah six mm-hmm. hours which is actually not i mean it, it sounds uh, well i mean that is that's a lot but at the last place where i worked it was actually a startup in new york they were a remote first company and they had people kind of all over the world and when i worked there my boss was in london so he was five hours ahead so i'm already used to kind of that time difference of working that far apart and ironically enough, my old boss, when I started at, at my old company, will now be my new boss at this new company. <laughs> so it's like the gang That's is amazing. getting back together in a, in a weird way. But uh, yeah, it'll be a six hour difference. So it should be fine. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So the most recent thing that I, I, I shot was actually shot in Prague, but we had to do it all remotely over mm-hmm. Zoom. Oh, wow. And I was in Bay Area at that time. So it was a nine hour difference, time difference. So I had to like voluntarily give myself jet lag (laughs) in order (laughs) to be able to do this production over Zoom. I would get up at like nine o'clock at night and then be on Zoom through the night until like what, like six in the morning, seven in the morning. Yeah. I was like, wow, this remote production life is not fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I know that there's, I mean, the thing with working remotely, I mean, and I've worked remotely now for well over 10 years now. And I know that it feels like because of the pandemic, it's kind of a new thing for a lot of people. And I really try to tell folks, like, especially if they're new to it and they're like doing it out of their home or something, like carve out a space, try to give yourself some hours, you know, like these are discrete work hours because it can be so, so, so easy to let work bleed into every other aspect of life because you're working from home. Like it is way too easy for that to happen. Yeah, I totally understand that. And I think one of the reasons why Mexico is working so well for me is I'm like two hours ahead. Well, actually I was two hours ahead until the other day. Now I'm three hours ahead. Mexico doesn't do the the, the time difference. So I have my mornings to myself, mostly like to go out and venture And then I'll come back around noon and then from noon until like the rest of the day, I'm like working online. I'm in work mode. So it's it's nice to kind of be able to break up my time that way because I feel like I still get to live my life and and enjoy my mornings for myself and then, you know, put my head down and and get to grinding. 
<laughs> yeah, that's, that's the thing. I mean, once you really start getting within a flow, and it's probably easier, I think, if you're, uh, I don't know, I'd say it'd probably be easier if you're an entrepreneur because you can really set your hours. But after a while working remotely, you know, like when your prime, like work focus mm-hmm. hours are. And oftentimes it may not line up with the hours that you had when you were in the office because it was just a different environment different space, you know, kind of thing. So that's good that you kind of have the mornings to sort of like ease into the rest of the day like that. Yeah. (laughs) So let's, you know, kind of switch gears here a little bit. We've been talking about your work. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? Oh, man. So I was born in Brooklyn, New York. I'm an East Coast girl, but my family moved to um, South Florida when I was, you know, in, in like elementary school. And I spent Half the year, like I'd be in school in South Florida, Fort Lauderdale area. And then the other half of the year, I'd be in New York, Christmas, spring break, Chris, and all of the summer, like all of the summer. So I feel like I grew up between, you know, Brooklyn and, you know, Fort Lauderdale. My family, you know, it's very, they're Caribbean. So my mother, she's British Jamaican. And my father, he was um, from Trinidad and Tobago. So, you you know, you walk into our household, there's so many different accents. You, you never really know, like, what's going on. You have New York accents, British accents, Jamaican accents, Trini accents. And I feel like my family stayed close to the East Coast so that we could be able to travel to the Caribbean a lot, too. So I, I did spend time in the Caribbean as well as a kid. And then in every neighborhood I grew up in, whether it was in Brooklyn or whether it was South Florida, it was always like a little hub, you know, of like either Trinis or, you know, Jamaicans. But yeah, that's how I grew up. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can imagine growing up in that environment. You definitely were probably exposed to a lot of art and design and just like vibrancy in general, right? Yeah. Yeah. Art, design, culture, food. Yeah. Lots of good food. And music. Music is so big in the Caribbean community, whether it's, you know, reggae roots or, you know, fast paced dance hall or soca. Caribbean living is very vibrant, very colorful, very much like a celebration of life. Me and my family, we like to go to Trinidad and Tobago for carnival every year. Even though, you know, carnival is shut down, it's, it's kind of sad this year, but it's such a celebration of life. And when you look at the costumes, when people wear them on the road, as we call it, you know, the road where the trucks are and the big parade is, you'll see that the headpieces and the makeup and everything. It's a full on affair and it's just colorful and it's vibrant. And it it's my favorite time of year. Carnival truly is my favorite time of year. Yeah. And I think that's also something that uh, where I get my love of color and, and bright, loud patterns from. I was picking up on a little bit of a Trini accent earlier. So when you said that, I was like, aha, I got it. (laughs) (laughs) When did you kind of know that, that like advertising was, when did you know that this was something that you wanted to do? Well, see, that's the funny thing is I studied advertising in my undergrad and I didn't study it on the creative side. I studied it thinking that I was going to go into like account management or like media production or media buying. And I went to journalism school at Florida International University in, in Miami. And I just found advertising just to be so interesting. You know, you get to work on so many different clients and projects. And there's like so much interesting research that goes into it. And I always was like a a big fan of like print ads and commercials and just, you know, TV. So I thought advertising was just a cool industry, but I did. It's just funny because I didn't really give much thought to the creative side until after I graduated and got my, my bachelorette. Nice. My bachelor degree. (laughs) (laughs) How did you first kind of break into working 
in the advertising industry? Was it just right out of college? You you started at a firm? Yeah. So right out of college, I started getting, you know, internships and I went to this one place, you know, in New York City called T3 and they were a dope advertising agency. And that was like my first like, wow, they make really dope, cool, creative work experience. But around that time, you know, there was a recession and it was hard for me to find like full time work after like I did all these internships. So then I shifted gears and I started working with nonprofits and, you know, doing marketing and development work. So it was still like me getting like my marketing fix, my design fix, but I was doing it for, you know, nonprofits, which is also something that is near and dear to me is working with communities and trying to uplift people and make things, you know, better for everyone. So it felt like a a good shift for me. But after a while, I realized that there's a lot of admin work when it comes to, you know, running nonprofits and doing development and fundraising. You have to be comfortable and good at asking people for money all the time, like all the time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I was like, man, I really don't want to ask people for money all the time. But I really love the event planning. I love the design of it. I loved bringing together like the annual fundraisers. Like I really excelled at that. I was really good at that. And so I remember. I had heard about Miami Ad School a while back because the university that I went to in Florida had a a graduate program with Miami Ad School and, you know, they had an art direction program. And I started thinking about it. I was like, what if I give advertising another shot? You know, just because I didn't land the right job for me the first time I was, you know, applying for jobs, maybe the account side isn't for me. Maybe I need to be on the creative side. I'm, I'm loving all these creative things I'm doing. I had you know, bought a a camera and I was doing like, you know, photography on the side. I was doing all these creative things. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to get a portfolio because when nobody's trying to give me the time of day, no one was like really trying to take me seriously when I said, okay, I want to go to, you know, be an art director and coming on the creative side. They were like, girl, you need a portfolio. So I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to transition shift gears and I am going to go back to school study art direction and be the best creative I can be. And so I did that. I, um, I switched gears. I, you know, got to Miami ad school, started, started studying art direction. I was like, this is it. This is it for me because I'm also, I also like writing, but I knew art direction was right for me because I'm very much a visual person and I love curating things. And I think that you have to be especially good at curating things as an art director because you're making so many mood boards and you're pulling so many references and you're building out these worlds. In ad school, they teach you how to curate and they teach you how to use a camera well and they teach you how to edit footage and they teach you how to, you know, design logos. And it it seems like you wear so many different hats and you touch things in so many different ways. And I was like, yes. That is for this girl because I love doing too many things all the time. And this will probably be the best use of my my time and energy, you know, as a creative person is to learn how to do everything well, you know, just be able to touch a lot of projects in different ways. I went to Miami Ad School um, and I went to the Brooklyn location, which, you know, was wonderful. And I worked full time while I went to school full time and it was hard. It was a hard two years of me, you know, finding jobs that would allow me uh, still enough time to be able to dedicate to school and learning and and building out my portfolio. And then when I graduated from, you know, Miami Ad School, I started getting, you know, more internships and I landed at this one small shop called SSNK. And it felt like it was just the perfect place for me because they had so many nonprofit clients, but then they also had so many consumer facing clients. And I was like, yes, 
because I have this, you know, nonprofit background, you know, understanding like how nonprofits work and, you know, the clients on that side, but I want to move forward and I want to work on, you know, big brands and it seemed like the right fit. And they were like, yeah, we want to hire you on. And they were the ones who gave me my first full-time shot at being an art director. And that's just where it all began. I actually was working on the stuff that they were doing after his um, re-election. They had some cool design work and then they worked on the Obama um, Foundation. They did a lot of the design work for the Obama Foundation and they still have a lot of political ties and everything with Obama. And it, it's just great because, you know, they did such good stuff with Obama and other smaller nonprofits. That's where I worked with on um, Planned Parenthood. But at the same time, they had, you know, big clients like E-Trade and HBO. They did some amazing work for HBO when I got my my first start there. And that was one of, that was also one of the reasons why I wanted to to be there. I think for people in advertising, it's really important to see the work and look at the work and decide, okay, is that the type of work I want to be? Then maybe this shop is, will be the right fit for me. So I have a, a kind of interesting, I guess it's like a, a anecdote, not really a story, but I met Lenny Stern from SSNK. This was probably, oh, when was this? 2009, I think. So I was working, I was working for AT&T in 08. This was like, you know, during Obama was running and everything. And I was so inspired by his campaign and I hated my job so much that when he got elected, I quit, I think, two weeks after. Like, we had a staff meeting, and I quit in the staff meeting because I was like, yes, we can. Yes, I can. You know, like, if Obama can do it, I can do it. I'm going to break out. I'm going to start my own studio. And the one of the first big clients that I had in 09 was a political campaign here in Atlanta. Uh, it was a mayoral campaign. And uh, the, the woman who was running, her name is Lisa Borders. She was running for mayor. She had ran initially, had dropped out to care for her parents. And then she was thinking of getting back in the race. And now she was getting back in the race at like a really sort of like interesting and tense time because you already had the front runners. It was Kasim Reed who ended up becoming the mayor, Mary Norwood. Other people were running. I think there were maybe nine or 10 people running. And she was kind of jumping back in in the middle of the race, the only black woman in the race kind of jumping back in to say like, I got this. And now like the Borders family has, it has ties in Atlanta in terms of like civil rights movements. They're a pretty well-known family, but she's jumping back into this, seeing like everything that social media and technology has done for the Obama campaign. And like, (laughs) I ended up working with her campaign and like the, the initial directors were kind of like, we want what Obama has. Now keep in mind, this is 2009. First set of municipal races after Obama got elected. There's no playbook for any of this stuff. Like, <laughs> like the people that have been doing it, nobody knew like how to do this. Like, I guess we can do it. Like at one point in time, we even used Gotham. Like we were just trying to be like Obama, but like we were trying to figure, <laughs> we were trying to figure out like, how do we get that same sort of like energy, but like distill it down to like a city's mayoral race. And it was, it was tough, but we met Lenny Stern. God, when was this? It was maybe about the summer, I think of 2009. One of the the other people who was one of my partners that worked with me, his name is John Birdsong, had connections to him. And we had met because it was, he was like, yeah, I see what you, what you guys are doing down in Atlanta with, uh, with the borders campaign. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Like it really was like me and maybe two or three other people were working in this like small campaign trying to make it work. Our candidate ended up coming in third place, but like the fact that it was making 
uh, you know, waves, like even here in the city, people are like, wow, the Borders campaign like has it together because we had a MySpace page for her. This is MySpace again, 2009. We had a MySpace page for her and we had LinkedIn and Meetup and Twitter and Facebook and all this stuff. Just like, honestly, just like throwing stuff at the wall to see what would stick. Like, are people responding here? Okay, let's not do that. Are, are people responding here? Good. Let's focus more on that. And it was so much like trial and error trying to like, make it work. And it was so interesting that SSNK had like saw the work that we were doing back then and was like, wow, keep it up. So that's my Lenny Stern story. That's not surprising to me because Lenny Stern sees everything. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, he's a great guy. The partners at SSNK are great people. Like I learned a lot at that place and it it really is like a, a small shop, but it's like, it feels like you're part of a big family. And I couldn't be any more appreciative of, you know, getting my start there and being able to touch projects the way that I did. And one of my most favorite campaigns I actually shot while I was there, it's called As American As. And it's pretty much like a photography campaign that we did for this network that was called Fusion. And what they were trying to do was speak to like the new America, the America that's, you know, very diverse and young. So we came up with this, you know, print campaign called As American As, and we paired it with visuals of people who you wouldn't think of when someone said very American. And we have a picture of a black father holding a black baby and he has on a shirt that says my life matters. We have a picture of, you know, a gay couple kissing in a park. We have, you know, a picture of 87-year-old woman smoking weed for the first time. We actually got her to do that for that shoot. It was amazing. But one of my favorite things about that shoot is that we shot real people on the street. And it was controversial at the time because we tried to run it in some places, especially like in the Philadelphia area. And they were like, this is too spicy. Like, this is too spicy for these, you know, billboards. We can't put this out here. Y'all, y'all got gay people kissing. No, 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 no. You guys got men in drag. No. And we were like, what? You really don't, you really want to censor, you know, this beautiful campaign that's celebrating diversity in America. We ended up spinning it, creating a website being like, this is what they don't want you to see. (laughs) The ad that was supposed to run here. And it was just a great group of people that worked on that project and I'll forever love it. (laughs) Nice, nice. Now, you mentioned earlier that you uh, have a podcast. Tell me about it. Yes, I do have a podcast. So outside of like the projects, you know, that I do just to keep the lights on, I love to do, you know, passion projects, side projects. And I have a podcast called Bag of Lies. And basically (laughs) the podcast is just exploring the ways that, you know, we all tell little white lies in a way to navigate the world. Like we all lie, we all do it. And we don't focus on like the nefarious, problematic lies. That's not what we do. We focus on like the little white lies that people tell. And we use that to decipher, you know, community and the way we we navigate the world and how we see ourselves. And I'll just give you, you know, the backstory as to how it started. Me and Sharina, we were in a coffee shop and, you know, she was new to Goodby and she was like, oh, hey, Malik, I know you're big into side projects. I'd love to collaborate with you on something. So we were just, you know, there talking about things we'd like to collab on. And I was like, oh, girl, hold up. I need to get me some caffeine. So I go to the barista to go order me a coffee and I have a coffee name. My coffee name is Emma. It's very random. It's it's not, you know, <laughs> close to my name at all. But I have this coffee name because so many people, you know, butcher my name, they spell it wrong or whatever. So 
I ended up ordering my coffee, but the barista was such a cool girl. Like me and her, we shocked up a whole conversation. She started telling me about my lo- about her life. She asked me about my dreads. And it was like, man, I could be friends with this girl. But then she brings me my coffee and she goes, well, here you go, Emma. And I was like, dang. <laughs> I already done started off this relationship on the wrong foot. I gave this girl my coffee name. Now we can't be friends. And so I walked back to you know the table that I was sitting at with Sharina. And I was like, Sharina, the coffee girl is such a cool girl, but I lied to her. She's like, what you lie about? I was like, girl, I gave her my coffee name. And Sharina was cracking up. And she was like, girl, I lie all the time too. And I was like, whoa, this is it. This is the thing that we're going to work on. And so we decided... What other instances do people lie about? And we we just started, you know, brainstorming like different, you know, ideas and concepts for, you know, what the content could be. And we've started, you know, just making episodes that explore a range of topics from dating to therapy to, you know, being black in America. Like, what do you lie about? to just even like names, like what, why do we lie about names sometimes, even to, you know, comedy and even at a Black History Month special. And so it's, it's an interesting way to understand people and see what our hangups are and why we lie. And most times people lie out of avoidance because they're scared of like what could happen in a certain situation or they feel uncomfortable. Like I know Sometimes people, you know, lie about the plans that they're going to make or they, your friend, you'll hit up your friend and you'll be like, Hey, what you doing? And you like, they're like, Oh, I'm about to take a shower and head out somewhere. But they, they know they're not going anywhere. They're, they're in bed just watching Netflix. Like people lie about silly things all the time. And so like, we have this fun podcast where it just feels like it's just two friends just, you know, talking about nonsense, but we're, we're talking about people lying. <laughs> I listened to a few of the episodes and I mean, the two of you sound like old friends like it's it's a great great podcast i'll put a link to it in the show notes so people can check it out that's funny about the coffee name my coffee name is jerry because it sounds like my last name which is cherry because people misspell maurice (laughs) all the time all the time i get mark marty martin marshall all kind of stuff that's not maurice so i just say jerry when someone says it, I think, oh, somebody said my last name. Let me go get my, my coffee. So I, I empathize with the coffee name for sure. I love that. Sometimes when I'm feeling spicy, I'll just say Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just <give> them <laughs> As my coffee name. And then because I like to hear them yell out Beyonce. They're like, Beyonce, uh-huh. Beyonce. <laughs> like, Is Beyonce here? And it's, no, it's just me messing with you. Sorry. It's interesting, you know, about how we kind of do tell, you know, little white lies and stuff all the time. And it got me to thinking about how people's, or I guess it's more me pontificating, just thinking out loud. Like, I wonder how people's behavior around lying has changed because of the pandemic. You know, I mean, it's one thing to say that you're not available because of, I got to do this. I got to go take the kids here. I got to go do whatever. But now, depending on where you are, people are mostly at home. And I know I've told many a lie to get out of a zoom call to (laughs) not have to sit in on something like, Oh, what's going on with your camera? Well, okay. The camera thing started out as a white lie. And then it just got into me saying, unless I'm getting paid, I'm not getting on camera. And they're like, Oh, okay. All right. I feel that. I like that. Cause I got to set up my ring light. I got to pick my hair out. Like if we're just doing like a 30 minute catch up, do we, I mean, come on. The phone still works. We don't have to do exactly. it, it. It amazes me how quickly everyone all of a sudden is like, we now have to do video calls because no, we don't. We really don't. I will die on <laughs> we that hill. We really don't. <laughs> I'm with you. 
the lie that I tell when I like need some alone time is like, I'll tell people, oh, I'm running to the grocery store. Uh-huh. And people accept that as an excuse because we go to the grocery store now. Like that's the one escape. That yeah. I, so if I just want to like be offline and I don't want to be bothered and I don't want to join calls, I'm like, I- I'm not free at that time. That's when I go do my grocery shopping. Nice. <laughs> it's the only excuse I can come up with. <laughs> <laughs> now you mentioned, I think I, I probably saw this in a presentation or something, how you're really into into typefaces do you have like a go-to typeface that you really like oh i love me some fonts well right now i'm into like the more of the the chunky like serif fonts like itc grouch or like recoletta i love those like beautiful like old school chunky fonts yeah but there was a time where i was really into like sans serif clean fonts like you mentioned gotham earlier and i was like oh <laughs> I miss using Gotham. Gotham is such a, a beautiful, round, just, mm, it's a beautiful font. Yeah. But then I also love like trade Gothic. Like I love a good industrial font that's just clean. I just, I love type. And my friends, you know, they get annoyed with me sometimes. Like we'll be on like the subway and I'll mm-hmm. look at ads and I'm like, oh, why'd they use that font? And blah, 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 blah. The kerning is terrible. The lighting is awful. And everyone's like, okay, we get it, you font snob. Um, but I can't. <laughs> help myself i literally can't help myself but you know typography is just such a a way to convey emotion with your words like the the choice the font that you choose can really help shape like a message yeah and i love looking at like movie titles and supers and then i just love looking at you know beautiful print ads like I love, you know, simple visual imagery, but there's Mm -hmm. just something about type where I can, like, if I'm working on a branding project, I will spend days like looking at fonts to really get the right font that will convey the type of emotion I want it to convey. Oh, you are so speaking my language. I have, I have a, a poster. It's hanging up right here in my studio. I'll just read it out to you. It's a poster about typography. It says, it's like a love letter to typography. It says, dear typography, I know you don't get enough credit for what you do. Few people are aware of your existence and fewer people know how much you influence the things they like. It's difficult because you always remind us of something else. I want you to know that I see you. If you ever feel insignificant, consider this. If it wasn't for you, no one would have any information and this wouldn't be a very good poster. Oh my God, I need that poster. Did I, I write that poster? Maybe I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> it's from an artist called Christopher Lee. I have, I think, three of his pieces in my apartment. I don't know if he still does the post. I have to look him up and see. But yeah, you mentioned Recoletta. I just used Recoletta for a branding campaign like a few months ago from uh, Latino type. I love those kind of like chunky sort of like mm. vaguely retro kind of serifs. Like it reminds me a lot of like typography from like the 70s. It, it's really, yeah. really, really good. Well, it's interesting how also typography will tell you about like what your cultural climate is. Yeah. Like when Obama's campaign came out, you know, we were very much into these clean, classic type like the Gotham because we were in like this modern era where, you know, everyone felt like we were making progress and moving forward. And a lot of the design in that, you know, from 08 until like, I want to say about like 2015, maybe 2014 was very clean and flat and everyone was embracing flat, clean type. And then, you know, sort of after the admin administration change, people were looking for more comfort 
because of the changing times. And we started going back to more retro, chunky types. You start seeing more Cooper out in the world and more fat face fonts, fonts that reminded people of like the 70s or like the early 80s, times when people were like full of peace and love. So it's there's so much, you know, information that typography can give you and it can really evoke emotion. And I think, you know, like your poster said, it's it's often overlooked, but typography is amazing. Like even think about how Nike, Nike uses typography so well. I like to study their ads. Like my dream is to make a, a Nike ad. I love Nike stuff, but their stuff is always so clean and, and classic and you, it always feels so premium because they use type in like the way it should be used. And I, I just, that, yeah, that's why I just have a love of type. <laughs> yeah. I will often, it's funny you mentioned that about like pointing that out to friends, like pointing out ads, because I do the same thing to people and it drives them crazy. The thing that I, and this is, you might empathize with this, I will watch television shows, <laughs> mostly black television shows, and it it pains me. Actually, let me, let me put an even finer point on it. I'll watch shows on BET or either stuff from like Tyler Perry or something. And it pains oh, me God. so much how bad the typography is. I just want to be like, Tyler, I am down the street. We can talk about you not using impact everywhere. Like find a different mm-hmm. typeface. That's just me though. I mean, I, I see impact no, I'm with so you. much and I'm just like, use something else. Use something else. Like to me, that's forever burned in my mind as like the meme font. Like when you see it used on it memes on the internet. Um, <laughs> it is. But I'm like, can it's we not keep, okay. yeah, like, can we not keep using impact? If you use impact so much, it no longer has an impact. Like, find yeah. something else. There are so many other typefaces. I would love to introduce these shows to better typefaces, but that I see impact everywhere. And it just, I used to get that way about Trajan Pro on movie posters, but I just figure that's, that's always going to be there. That's always going to connote some kind of like, royal feeling or some kind of you know it's a very safe mm-hmm. font like trajan kind of yeah. i think reminds people of like tradition stability you know that kind of thing so yeah definitely yeah. different different fonts can evoke different feelings and things like that i know people used to be all up in arms about comic sans and everything like that like that's how i the way people feel about comic sans is the way i feel about impact i hate it yes yes i mean impact is, is an awful font I, I'll be, <laughs> i'm there with you 100 <laughs> But if you do get in touch with Tyler Perry, I'd like to talk to him, too. I feel like there's a lot of ways we could push his craft. But shout out to him for making content, though. That's true. That's true. That's true. (laughs) I've not been to the studio, but I've definitely seen lots of pictures. And and like all the studios have impact font on the building. And I'm just like, Tyler, we got to talk. I'm actually really trying to talk to someone from Tyler Perry Studios for the show. Not to rant about impact, but just to kind of get a sense of like, what the inner workings are. Cause I think, you know, as people outside of that bubble, we sort of see everything that Tyler does and it's with great volume and with great speed quality is, you know, it depends on kind of what your taste level is or what you like or what you get into, but like you can't knock the hustle. Like the fact that he's doing what he's doing on the scale that he's doing is definitely very impressive. I just kind of want to get a sense of like, what's the creative like behind the scenes? Like I'm just super interested in how he manages to pull all of that together so quickly. Right. He must have like a very big team. Yeah. If you could go back and talk to, to young Malika, like fresh out of FIU, what advice would you give her? Oh girl, don't be so (laughs) (laughs) self-conscious. 
Oh, man. I used to care so much about what people thought about me, what their opinions were about me. And now I just embrace, you know, me for for who I am. And and I think a lot of people want to work and collaborate with me because I just embrace authenticity and I want people to show up as their most authentic self. And if I could go back to and talk to my younger self, I'd be like, don't be afraid to to take risk and don't be afraid to be yourself and embrace yourself. Don't try to mold yourself to fit everyone else's expectations. You're dope the way that you are. And it took me a long time to understand that and to understand my own like value and that my upbringing, everything, you know, about me brings value to what I do. And I didn't see that as value. I thought it was something I needed to shake. I thought I needed to be different in order to, you know, fit in into the working world. But once I started, you know, embracing my roots and the things that, you know, make me who I am, I feel like my work got better. My execution of things got better. It just I needed to, you know, really infuse more of like my taste into my work. And and for a long time, I feel like I waited for people to to give me opportunities And now I create my own opportunities. I don't wait for people to give me anything anymore. I just, if I want to do something, I'm going to go out and figure out a way to do it. And I think a lot of young people aren't taught that. They're not taught that you can create your own opportunities. They're taught, go to school, learn this thing, do it well, so someone will hire you and give you a paycheck. They're not taught, hey, pursue your passions, learn to be the best at your craft, and create your own opportunities. That's also a way forward if I could meet my younger self. Who are some of your like influences and, and people that have like helped you out along the way to get to where you are? Because I definitely can sense the the passion behind the work that you do. And certainly you bring a lot to the table with your enthusiasm and authenticity and ideas. But like, who are some of the people that helped you to get to where you are today? Well, I would say that the women in my life, like my mother and my three aunts on my father's side, have definitely been like my biggest supporters and the people who, you know, have inspired me the most to work hard. But then like outside of like my family, because I'm part of a huge family. I'm actually five of six kids. (laughs) I got brothers and sisters, cousins and nieces and nephews everywhere. Outside of my family, I've just been incredibly, you know, blessed with just a big network of, you know, a range of people who come from different backgrounds. I have, you know, friends from when I worked in nonprofit who were getting their PhD in, you know, like really important studies of like, man, I can't, I'll probably butcher the title because these people are just so smart, but like, you know, really smart people who were, you know, making waves within like the nonprofit community in terms of like fundraising and development and creating spaces for, you know, underserved communities. And then I've had really great mentors on the advertising side that have really inspired me. And some of my closest mentors right now are two white dudes from South Africa. They're like, you know, these really dope creative directors who have really, elevated me and show me what it takes to be a leader and how to be a good, you know, creative director. They really empower me and they push me. And then on the, the other side, I have like really great, you know, women in my life who aren't maybe creatives, but you know, they they work within the advertising space in different ways. Like people like Leslie B, who, you know, does hiring at, at Good Beat. She's great. And, you know, she always, you know, inspires me and pushes me to do learning opportunities. Like she pushed me to go to work it, which is like a podcast conference festival last year. And she helped me find funding 
you know, to go there. And at first I was like, I don't think I have time to do this. She's like, you should go. It'll be good for you. And like, she really like tells me to go out and push myself to make space for, you know, new learning opportunities. So that's great. And then I have, you know, my mentors that are, you know, from the black community, like Ronnie and Anthony, who are really dope ACDs, associate creative directors, who I worked on the Not A Gun campaign with. They've been really great at, you know, uplifting me and, and showing me how to use my voice and not being afraid to tackle difficult things such such as, you know, police violence against black people and, and putting work out in the world and, and being OK with it. They've been you know great mentors of mine, because one of the things that you'll find in advertising is there are black people, but the majority of them are black men. And so it's really hard to find other black female mentors. And so now that I'm in this space, I have all these mentors that are giving me advice and, and tell, showing me how to lead. I'm looking at myself not as like the only because we tend to that we're like, oh, man, I'm the only in the room. I'm looking at myself as like I'm the first I'm going to be the first to, to be here. Like I was the first black, you know, female art director at, at Goodby when I was there. And I was the only black creative when I was there. But then they started hiring a bunch more. And now that I'm there, there's, you know, a handful more, you know, black creatives and it's great. And I got to hire, you know, more black female creatives. And so me thinking I'm going to be the first is going to open the door for people to be the second, the third, the fourth and the fifth. So I'm now looking at myself to be like my own mentor by, by learning from my mentors on how to lead and how to create spaces for them. And then I think the other people in my life that, you know, inspire me are people who I work with every day, such as, you know, Sharina Chandler, who's my co-host on my podcast. She's wonderful. She always she points out, you know, when I'm having uh, what's it called? Imposter syndrome. I think we all suffer from imposter syndrome to some degree. She always calls me out on my on my crap. And then my my writing partner, my day to day writing partner, Kate Cullen. She's an amazing, dope woman from Chicago. I think one of the reasons why me and her get on so well is because she's from Chicago. I'm from Brooklyn. And so, you know, now we're on the West Coast and we have such a like a take no prisoners approach to dealing and talking to people. And it's it's been a great experience working with her. And I, I learned so much from her. But yeah, I feel like for me, I have mentors that come from all walks of life because I haven't always been fortunate to, to see people that look like me. So I have, you know, mentors such as Jeff Goodby, who whose name is on the ad agency that I work at, you know, Jeff Goodby, you know, is one of the people who was behind the whole Got Milk campaign. Like he's such a brilliant man. And I, I'm so lucky to be able to, to count on him as a mentor. It's, he's an amazing resource. And I was actually able to interview him for my podcast um, last year. And he's just a great guy who offers up his time and space to me whenever I feel like I need to, you know, ask someone for advice. So I like to, you know, get some diversity and range in the mentor group. <laughs> nice, nice. Now, one question that, you know, I'm asking every guest who comes on the show this year uh, is about really kind of like, how are you helping to build the future? You know, 2020 for everything that has happened this year has really kind of changed a lot of us in many different ways. So how are you helping to build a more equitable future? That's a good question, but it's also a hard question. I think for me, I'm stepping up and sharing my story in more places. I've been fortunate enough that a lot of people have given me a platform to share my story and just to share like my opinions on life and everything. And I think that by showing people that, hey, you can be a black girl with dreads and come from Brooklyn and come from a big family and not have much and be able to shape the life that you want to live. Because people, they don't really... 
know what the possibilities are sometimes until they see it. And I use my platform to show people that, hey, here's a career that you've never heard about. A lot of people don't know what an art director is, but it falls on deaf ears all the time. I'm an art director. I do these cool things. My job allows me to travel the world, to, to film awesome things, to interact with cool people and, you know, to build brands. And I think by, you know, sharing my story, I'm able to inspire others to be able to, to go out and um, pursue their passions. The other thing is, is with the work that I make, I like to, you know, build awareness for, you know, different causes. And I know that not everyone is able to create the type of campaigns and works that I do specifically, like not a gun, which is, it's not even just an awareness campaign. It's also, there's outcomes there. Like if you shot, if you sign the petition at notagun.org, you'll be able for us to get, you know, more training for um, more unbiased training for police officers so that we can work on, you know, police brutality in America. And, you know, working on campaigns like that, that makes me feel like I'm contributing to the cause and I'm doing something for my community and, and that I'm putting, you know, good work out in the world alongside being able to put out, you know, work in the world for like a client such as like Liberty Mutual. I feel very fortunate to, to be able to have platforms where I can do work, do work like that. The other thing that I think I do is I find casting to be very important in the work that I do. And... I tell people this all the time, like you might not be able to, you know, do work for Planned Parenthood or do work like not a gun. But if you are a creative person and you're out here creating content, you can think about and really consider the people that you're casting because casting is such a powerful tool because people feel empowered when they see themselves out into the world, when they can turn on the TV and see someone that looks like them or talks like them in an ad. So I love to tell people that, you know, you might not be able to go protest or march down the street or have a bunch of resources at your disposal. But if you are someone that's working in the creative space, you can work towards a more equitable future by using more diversity in your casting. And, and that's something that's you know very important to me. And then the other thing, you know, that I'm doing is I'm, I'm offering myself up as a mentor these days. I'm like signing on with like local programs for, you know, people who are just now getting into production, like a program called Baycat. I'm a mentor there. I lend my services as a mentor. I go and I do talks. I do like portfolio reviews. I, you know, teach kids about production. So I try to be as, you know, involved in my community as, you know, my schedule and, and my time allows. But, you know, at the highest level, I try to make, you know, content that speaks to, you know, the cultural climate and bring the culture into a lot of the work that I do. And then, you know, at the middle level, I try to promote casting and diversity. And then at the lower level, I try to actually like meet people and young people and inspire them and, and provide mentorship to young people. I think for me, I want to continue being like a creative, a creative director, but I'm also hoping to become a serial entrepreneur. <laughs> and by that, I mean, I want to, you know, launch several businesses. I, I want to be able to start, you know, a way to create income for me and, you know, other women of color. I'm thinking about, you know, starting an LLC, you know, to be able to do that. But I, I do see being a creative as something that's always going to be like a lifelong passion. But I do imagine that at some point I'll probably start my own venture. And I don't know if that's starting my own creative shop or if it's, you know, starting my, my, other side hustle passion businesses. Cause I I'm really into interior design. I've also had a dream of like building homes and renovating them, 
But I think the great thing about being an art director or just being a creative in period is it, it teaches you a lot of skills that allows you to be able to pivot in your career and do a lot of different things. So I do see myself in five years still being a creative, but I, I have a feeling that I'll probably start my own venture in some capacity, whether it's like an online company or it's like a company where I'm buying homes and flipping them. But I do feel like I'm going to move from having side hustles to other like full-time big uh, hustles. <laughs> nice. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and everything you're doing online? You can find me at www.malikareed.com. Some of my projects are live on my personal website. And then on Instagram, you can find your girl at Malika the Great. On Instagram. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Well, Malika Reed, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, I needed to to have this conversation with you today, I think just because, you know, like I mentioned before, we're recording this on election day, but like just I'm feeling like your enthusiasm and energy for the work that you do and, and the creativity that you have, like through the internet. Like it's so infectious. I hope for people that are listening that they hear this too. But there's something that you said in the middle of, of everything that you were talking about when you said, I value authenticity. And I think certainly people get that from you. Like I, I'm getting that from you. Like this is exactly who you are. And I can tell that you bring this to your work. You're passionate about causes. I'm just really excited to see what you do next. I'm inspired. I'm inspired. This is kind of what, it, what I think we all need to hear. You know, somebody that's out here thriving and doing it and really kind of like making a way <laughs> On, on your own, you know, on your own terms. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you, Maurice. It's been a pleasure talking to you. <laughs> big, big thanks to Malika Reed. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Malika and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Just like I did with Tommy G's review from Australia, I'll read it right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.